Let's pray one more time together and then we'll begin. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the grace that you give us to gather, to sing, to lift up our voice in praise and in adoration of your name, in adoration and in exaltation. Truly, Lord, in celebration of who you are, what you've done. And Lord, we now look to your word as that supreme means of grace in our lives. Under your spirit and by your power, Lord, that, that means of grace that is to inform us, to instruct us, to build us up, to sanctify us, and to help us, Lord, as we fight the good fight, as we run the race, as we set ever before us Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, we come to a text now that talks about just how hard that race can become. And so we ask you, Lord, in this hour to grant us understanding and to give us the grace not only to understand what you're setting forth here in Scripture, Lord, but more appropriately, Lord, to appropriate that and to even apply it to our lives. Give us the power in your spirit to apply this so that we can be courageous, so that we can stand firm, so that we can hold fast to our confession to the end. Oh, what an end it's going to be. Give us strength now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, as he was facing crucifixion, gave us a little bit of a commentary on persecution. And this is what he said. It's a small little detail in the Gospels that we easily run over and we just move on in the narrative. Jesus is betrayed, they have come to arrest him, to hurt him, to abuse him, to pummel him, inevitably to scourge him, beat him beyond recognition, and hang him on a cross. And he was fully aware that that was about to befall him. And this is what he says. Luke twenty-two, fifty-three. While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay a hand on me or hands. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. What exactly is Jesus talking about there? What he's saying is that this moment at a critical juncture in the life of Christ where all things were handed over to Him by the Father, meaning everything that He was tasked with, everything came to a head. The hour had arrived. And at this moment was where everything changed. No longer is Jesus going to be going around the towns of Galilee. No longer is Jesus going to be walking by the seaside 
No longer is Jesus going to be going down to the river to baptize with his disciples. No longer is he going to be preaching in the temple. Now, he has become the Lamb. He has become the one who will be led to the slaughter. And he knows it. But he wants the world who is at this moment, put yourself there in the garden, put yourself in the situation. It's not 2,000 years after this happened. It's happening. And Jesus says that this hour is the power of darkness. What are we experiencing in the persecution of Jesus Christ? We are experiencing the power of the dragon. The power of the age-old, millennia-old conflict between the serpent and the seed. And it's time. It's time to do battle with the serpent. It's time to do battle with the dragon. And this is an hour of great power. Cataclysmic spiritual power. And it is the hour of darkness. So much so that in fact the earth was darkened at the cross. With physical darkness. There was an earthquake. There was, in other words, there was an upheaval of cataclysmic proportions because the light of the world was beneath the hand of darkness for a little while. And oh, the darkness that was at work. Do you know, congruent with the persecution of Jesus is the persecution of His people. Right? You can see it in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 9. What happened there was that the Apostle Paul was on his way to go persecute and literally to go kill Christians because he was so zealous for the traditions of his fathers. He was so zealous for his doctrine and his Judaism. There's very little that separated Paul from an ISIS member. Well, not little, a lot. The truth. He had the true and living God. He had the oracles of God. He had the truth of God's Word. He thought he was serving God as he understood Him, as he was revealed in the Old Testament. And he thought that this Christian sect, this, this, this movement called The Way, that it was a, a, a parasitical sect on the back of the true religion, which is Judaism. And so he did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. He did not accept that what Jesus did on the cross was redemptive in any way and He made it His very mission to stamp out and to eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth. So much so that He gladfully stood by as a young man named Stephen was being stoned to death. And He was complicit. He held on to the clothes of the people who were throwing the stones. You ever seen a stoning? I don't recommend it. I, I don't recommend it. But I've seen it in my study of Islam. I've seen a stoning in today's world. It's awful. It's awful. You don't want to see it. Paul was at that moment 
persecuting the Lord Jesus himself. That should be a great comfort to us, that Jesus Christ takes our persecution so personal that in Acts 9 he says, not why are you persecuting Stephen? He doesn't say that. He says, why are you persecuting me? Brothers and sisters, you and I are at a great disadvantage, as I've pointed out many times in the study of texts like this, because you and I simply do not experience persecution. At this level, uh, on a common, uh, everyday basis, we are just simply not confronted with the truths of it. I have a friend who's doing ministry in the Middle East, It's moving around freely, doing a lot of neat ministry, missions. You know, missions can be very fun. Exciting, it's going new places, meeting new people, seeing new cultures, and you're involved in all sorts of wonderful ministry until he got arrested for preaching the gospel. And what he told me was when that door to that cell slammed shut, he lost faith in everything. Save the Lord. Accept the Lord. In other words, there was a gut punch to his stomach he was not ready for. All of a sudden, all the theory, all the theoretical abstract theology that he knew, and he knows a lot, all of the wonderful theology that he had learned in seminary and in school and what he had been taught in church and from his pastors, all of a sudden, in a sense, all that went out the window and the only thing left was, do you believe? Because you are in a cell now. A cold, uncomfortable cell with an uncertain future. Not knowing what's going to happen to you in the next hour. (laughs) You want to become a theologian? (laughs) This will make you, this will bring you right into experiential theology. You will experience the power of darkness. And here's the thing, when that power comes against the church, only your understanding and your faith and your trust in the kingdom of God will hold you together. If Jesus did not believe that as he was being led to the the slaughter, there waited for him, there awaited for him right on the other side of that bloody river. A glorious kingdom beyond your wildest dreams. So intense, more intense than the darkness that he was about to experience. Direct conflict with the serpent. No one in here can talk like that. Nobody in here can speak of that experience. None of you have done battle with the devil himself. Jesus faced the full wrath of Satan, the full wrath and anger, the fierce hatred of God, the diabolical evil of Satan himself, the prince of darkness, the father of lies who was a murderer from the very beginning. He is now in conflict with him. And that that moment is where Jesus, I believe, went into that state of mind where the book of Hebrews talks about that because of his great piety, he was heard. 
in the recesses of his heart, in the inward part where no one sees, Jesus trusted the Father. Jesus believed in the Bible. Jesus believed in the promises of God. He believed in the kingdom of God. And He believed that no matter what man does to me on this side of heaven or nothing can overcome the reality of the kingdom of God that is promised to me that I will be obtaining in a few moments if I will just pass through the fire, go under the crucible of the sword of judgment and come out the other end refined, shiny and new, brilliant with power, glorified like the sun. You and I, brothers and sisters, are right there. Don't think that just because we are in this American Christianity where we are literally in a Disneyland state of mind every single day of our lives that we are not going to pass through the same valley. We will. It may look like a it may look like a deathbed at 90 and your thoughts are betraying you. You're thinking do I really Am I really participating in this whole kingdom thing? Am I really in Christ? Am I righteous? Am I going to make it? Is it going to happen for me? Is he, like a shepherd, going to take me through the valley of the shadow of death, hold my hand and bring me safely to the other side? Or are you a joke? Or are you going to implode upon yourself in self-condemnation. Oh, you see, you see, see, see. It may not be that you have to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, go get crucified to experience. It may be that phone call from the doctor that you don't want. Yeah. It may be that accident that you're a part of. It may be that God sent natural disaster that wipes out your whole neighborhood. I went to Joplin right after the, her, the tornado in Joplin. Uh, Juan and I went, and uh, it was terrifying. You know why? The wind was so fierce, it pulled the grass off the ground. Terrifying. Nowhere to hide. People went under their basements, and the foundation of the houses were coming off. <sighs> I am, in, in a sense, I am trying so desperately to understand that even though you and I are removed from the type of experience that may have been befalling the Thessalonian Christians who were being persecuted at the hands of their own countrymen, even as those in Judea were being persecuted by their countrymen, though we may be removed from that in a sense because we are all, God willing, going to be driving home from this place, going to be safe on the highway, on the road, going to be pulling up to our driveway and we're going to get out and we're going to go into our nice little homes and be fine. Praise God. We shouldn't be resentful about it. Thank God we have that. But, but, but just because we are so removed from the Thessalonian experience, I think we are missing the things that are being said here. And above all, brothers and sisters, it is the reality of the kingdom of God. Are you guys there? Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. It's real problems 
practical problems. Someone's going to jail. Someone's getting beat up. Remember in Thessalonica in Acts chapter uh, 16, Jason goes to jail. Young man, probably young, probably a guy you just like. Someone everybody knows from the account. Seems like he'd be somebody everybody in the church would love. Having people over to his house, opening up his home for fellowship. And he goes to jail because Paul was preaching in his home. And he's associated with that. And so these Thessalonians are experiencing real inconvenience to their life. It's problematic. It's uh, keep you up at night. You're anxious. What are they going to do to him? What's going to happen to him? It's probably the same exact fear that gripped my friend's heart when he realized, now I'm in jail. And so when Paul, who is fully aware of what's going on, fully understands and comprehends precisely what is happening, what does he comfort him with? We'll get you out. Don't worry about it. We'll call, you know, the UN or a U.S. ambassador. We'll get a petition going to get, try to get you out of jail. We're going to try everything we're going to do to get you. You know, we'll hire lawyers or something. We'll get the Southern Baptist to, you know, give a few million dollars to spring you out of prison. Paul gives them theology. Come on, Paul. We're already in trouble. We're in jail. We're beyond that already. Are you? No. The Apostle Paul gave them, in fact, the greatest thing that he could have given, the greatest thing that he can give us, and the greatest thing that we need to meditate on, which is the reality of the kingdom of God. Look at what it says. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, and then this is the, this is the clincher right here. This is the worldview shifting. This is the perspective changing phrase. For which indeed you are suffering. And we'll get, I don't want to mess it up. We'll get there. I won't go too fast. But because what Paul is saying is, is that something, number one, is an indication of the kingdom of God. And what is that? Now, admittedly, uh, commentators struggle very hard with this text. You know why I'm doing one verse? Might be sitting there scratching. Why do you stop and do one verse? Oh, something's up. I did one verse, and I kind of get in the habit of this because when the Apostle Paul gives me a hard time exegetically, instead of getting frustrated with him, he has taught me to stop and pause and ask the question, why is he doing this to me? Why can't he just say it easier so I could just preach it? Doesn't he know i got an outline to put together? Yeah, so I've caught on to his little, his little trick. When Paul is exegetically tricky, controversial, well, when Paul is, the exegesis is not crystal clear what he's saying, but it's nuanced. I believe he wants you to stop. He wants you to pause, to marinate, and think, and meditate 
and really truly think hard about what he's doing here. Because, here's the contrary, to let you in on what's going on here in the text, follow me. In my Bible, which is the NASB, which is the Bible you should have, of course. My Bible in verse 5 says, this is a plain indication. There's only one problem there. The word this is is in italics. What does that mean? It's not in the original Greek. I wish it was. It'd be, everything was so simple. There it is. There's the connecting verb. Boom. It's a to me verb. Got it. But he doesn't give, give me that. So then scholars are left trying to figure out, okay, he just says, if you would, a plain indication. A plain indication of God's righteous judgment. Number one, what is a plain indication? Or the ESV has the word, this is, a, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What is the evidence? What is the proof? What is the plain indication? Because, <laughs> sorry to be ironic here, it's not that plain. <laughs> what is the plain thing? The difficulty here, of course, is that there is no logical, exegetical antecedent in the grammar. When there's no logical, clear antecedent in the grammar, you are left speculating what the antecedent is. And so you try to connect, you know, is it, does it correspond because, you know, it's masculine, masculine, feminine, feminine. You know, what, how does this correspond? Plural, singular, you know, that, you try to connect it. That, but there's nothing here for that. There's no, there's no giveaways or else the commentators would just say, oh, here it is, boom, there it is. No. So what do you have is commentaries going, okay, here's the first position, here's the third, second position, here's the third position of how this can be argued grammatically, exegetically, welcome to my world. So when I've learned that when that tends to be the, 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 the dynamic in the text, when there is no clear, grammatical, explicit antecedent or referent to something, then it is not necessarily grammatic as much as it is conceptual. It is more thematic than it is exegetical in the sense of it's not one word, but it's the words and the idea that, the, that is being conveyed. Just look at the previous context. What is the context of the previous, te- of the previous uh, verses? The context, if we want to speak generally, is persecution. But let's get a little bit more specific. It's not just persecution. It's also the endurance of the church through persecution. It is the enduring faith of the church in the face of persecution that the Apostle Paul, I believe, so here's my view, I believe that the Apostle Paul is now saying this is a clear implication or uh, uh, indication of God's righteous judgment, that you as the church are persevering in the face of persecution. This is a clear indication of God's righteous judgment. Now, I'm going to give you three points real quick. Number one, the manifestation of the kingdom of God. Uh, Number two, the obtaining of the kingdom of God. Number three, the reality of the kingdom of God. Number one is the manifestation of the kingdom of God based on that language, plain indication. There is some sort of revealing of the kingdom of God. There is something that points us directly to God's judgment, which is, of course, associated with his kingdom. The manifestation of the kingdom of God is brought about when the church suffers by faith, and endures that suffering. But the, the tricky aspects of this text are not over. Another trick is 
Why the language? Okay, so the church is enduring in the face of persecution. How does that equal judgment? Right? Wouldn't you expect something like, this is a plain indication, therefore, that you're enduring? It's not what he says. There's a plain indication of the righteous judgment of God. What's the connection there? And so, my position on that is simply that this is God's judgment in the sense that God has rendered a verdict in the favor of the church. As much as it is a condemnation of the wicked and the persecutor, it is also a vindication of the believer and in the church who is persevering by faith. How do I know that for sure? Well, because verses 6 all the way down to verse 10, I think make it clear. There is a double entendre, if you would, to the term judgment. There's a two sides to this coin, if you would. There is the judgment of the wicked as Christ is going to return to deal out retribution and flaming fire. And there is also the the deliverance, the, the rest, the repose. There is the relief that is given to the church. If you look throughout the history of the Old Testament, really typically that's the way that God's righteous judgment always works. It's salvation for his people and judgment for the wicked. Always. But there is a text that is parallel. To Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, I think, is something of an interpretive key for this text. It's not exactly the same, but it's very close in terms of the Philippians 2. They're being persecuted. They're enduring. And in the same way, Paul is saying there is here some sort of sign, some sort of evidence, proof, a manifestation. In other words, it's revealing, telling us something. And what is it telling us? Same thing that Thessalonians is telling us. Deliverance for his people and retribution upon the wicked. Look at verse 27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Same sort of commendation he gave to the Thessalonians already. With one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Watch this now. In no way alarmed by your opponents. Wow. (laughs) easier said than done, Paul. (laughs) In no way alarmed by your opponents. Well, yeah. And then he says, why? Which is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you. And that too from God. Jesus, when he said, This hour and the power of darkness are yours. What's he saying there? What's happening there? It's two things. Jesus is admitting just how dark the Antichrist... uh, I won't mess this up, but he's showing us just how dark the Antichrist spirit runs. But notice also that he is the one making the declaration. He is allotting to them the extent of their power. He's basically saying, okay, it's time you get this much. So you better enjoy it. This much but no further. It's like that. It's like that. 
you can persecute my people this much. But there is coming a time where you will learn no further. God ordains the persecution of his people. You got that? Calvinist? God's sovereign, his eternal decrees, he's ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Westminster Confession, got it. I agree. That means he ordains the suffering of his people. How do you know that for sure? Because, brothers and sisters, a servant is not above his master. If they persecuted our master, they will persecute the servant. And do you think the persecution that was brought upon the master is something that happened accidentally? Of course not. It was ordained by God for an infinite and eternal and sovereign, good, redemptive, glorious purpose that will magnify, exalt, and and glorify his name. Yeah. The answer is always the glory of his name, to the glory of his name. His glory, not our glory. His name, not our name. His honor, not our honor. It's the biggest One of the biggest worldview shifts in my Christian life is when I went from being man-centered, God-centered, thanks to Calvinism. When I realized, oh, the world doesn't exist for me. (laughs) I forgot. You ever watch those uh, documentaries where they, Planet Earth, you ever seen Planet Earth documentaries like on um, Nat Geo Wild or whatever? You're holier than me. You don't watch TV, but... I marvel at that stuff, that, that planet Earth stuff. I don't even know how they get the footage. It's incredible. It's incredible. Deep under the ocean, in the recesses of some cave somewhere. I mean, how do they get a camera in there? How do they get a camera that quality in there? Anyway, I thought, that's going on all the time, nonstop, around the world. Forget the world. The Earth, well, don't forget. The, the Earth is like a grain of sand in comparison to the cosmos. Now zoom out and what's happening 10 zillion light years from here. It's just as amazing as what's going on on planet Earth. What for? No one's enjoying or seeing it or delighting in it. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Elon Musk is going to, SpaceX is going to, you know, create time travel and space travel for it. We're all going to go and enjoy all that. No, brothers and sisters, everything exists just like the Bible says. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's for him to enjoy. He enjoys the creation. Remember from Sunday school, God saw everything that it was good. So the universe, a zillion miles away, brought to the appropriate audience the appropriate entertainment with the appropriate satisfaction. God enjoyed what he saw. It's like, man, look at Saturn. Look at the Milky Way. Wow. Good. And then he rested, which is a symbol of God reigning over his created universe. Isn't that incredible? You know I can go on a tangent on that. In other words, God ordains this suffering, the need for the church to go through persecution for the church's good and for the vindication of his justice. 
This is what John Eadie, the wonderful, great, brilliant, Puritan exegete, not even uh, fitting to call him an expositor. He's more than that. But he says, The patient suffering of the believer demonstrates that there is now righteous judgment on the part of God. The grace that so sustains them for him, he as judge accepts and approves them by the bestowal of such gifts of patience and faith. And this experience is a further token or presage that a period of fuller manifestation is coming when the persecutors shall receive condign retribution, meaning it's fitting, and their victims shall be brought into eternal and perfect repose. So what, God, what Paul is saying is that in the persecution that you Thessalonians are experiencing, that broaden it out, in the persecution that the church right now, 2000, what were we at? 18? Right, 2018, that is experiencing worldwide, globally, all of that is producing a pure church, a pure bride, and a hell-deserving fallen race in Adam. It is affirming the judgment of God. It's just remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. I was preaching once, and um, just to remind you of this, brothers and sisters, that we're not so removed from the experience, maybe because we're over here thousands of miles away where it's kind of safer, it's getting crazier. I remember preaching one time, I told you the story once maybe, but I was preaching in South Lake, real safe place, and I noticed these two Middle Eastern gentlemen looking at me while I was preaching. I got down from preaching, they came right up to me and they said, hey, not knowing what to expect, I was like, yes. They said, we really like your preaching. They said, uh, we do this in our country, but uh, in our country, you can die very easily for doing this. He said, we just buried one of our church members. I said, what happened? I said, a young lady, 16 years old. Uh, she converted from Islam to Christianity. She got baptized. After her baptism, some time went on, and she felt like she needed to tell her parents. So she went home, told her parents, and they threw her out of a 10-story apartment to her death. It don't cost us over here enough. So we're not sober enough because it don't cost us enough. We start seeing people die in the church. We're going to start taking Christianity a lot more serious. We're going to start taking church more serious. That's why I believe in what John Piper many years ago taught me, that we need a little artificial suffering in our life. We kind of kind of induce it over here in the West. We got to kind of go put ourselves in a little bit of harm's way. I know it sounds ascetic and a little bit crazy, and as a pastor, I could get in trouble for saying it, but you, you guys already know me. But what I would say is, I think what he's saying is that be willing to risk, reach, Step out. When that's your focus, I promise you, all the trials that are flooding your mind right now as I'm preaching that become many times over the causation of the distractions of the, to the preaching of the Word of God while I'm preaching because your mind is going with the problems that you're having and the issues that you're dealing with and the, and the, and the trials that you're going through. And I tell you, when you live like this, you ain't got time to worry about that. Your focus is eternal. 
Your focus is much more eternally minded. Adoniram Judson was a Baptist minister in the 18th century who said, or 19th century, sorry, 1800s, who went to the Burmese Indians to go preach the gospel among them. And he was so crazy that he told the entire Baptist convention that he was a part of, he said, hey, either you send me, you support me, you send me out, or forget it. I'm out of here. I'm not waiting for you. Okay, we can debate the controversy of that later. Needless to say, he went and he said, see ya. What did it cost him? Three wives and children. Three wives all died on the mission field and a son. What did it cost him? Getting chained out in the open rice paddies, the fields, being devoured by mosquitoes at night. What did it cost him? His sanity. For a time, Adonai Judson basically went insane. Was so sunk in depression, he destroyed everything he ever wrote except for one little book that survived. He burned all his writings. So forget it. And you know what snapped him out of it? You know the story? His brother got saved. His brother that he'd been praying for for years He got word in the mission field, your brother got saved. And that lit a fire back under him. And he was able to rouse himself up one more time and go back into ministry and go back into doing what he was doing until he died. And when he died, he got no proper burial. He got nothing, man. He got thrown off a boat by pagans. And because of his, directly from his labor, over 3,000 Baptist churches all over India were born. You think that Adoniram Judson is ever going to regret doing any of that? No way, man. He walked into heaven, he's going to see his congregations that he established directly through the fruit of his labors. Oh, there's going to be such infinite satisfaction at all the suffering and all the trials and all the sacrifice. The laying it down and laying it aside. He will never regret it. Why? Because he believed in the kingdom of God. What are you building for? What's the purpose? What makes you tick? I had a guy ask me that one time. What gets you out of that bed in the morning? What makes you tick? That's a good question. What does make me tick? What does keep you going? Why do you do it? If it's for family, money, houses, bills, we are living way too low. We are way too mundane. We are too earthly. God help us. I came up here today to preach this message and I thought in my heart, God help us to see what I'm about to preach Because I need it much as you need it. And what Paul is giving these Thessalonians is exactly what they needed. They didn't need a big old therapeutic psychological session. They needed doctrine to hold them together. They needed the greatest truth of all. It's the same exact truth that kept a crucified man crucified with Jesus on the cross next to him that kept him from utter despair. Utter despair. 
You're already hanging on the cross. You are a poor sap, a miserable soul. And yet, what does the gospel teach us? That it matters not what is happening to you externally. The world may do whatever it wants. Under the hour and under the power of that limited darkness, they could string you up on a cross next to Jesus Christ and you can hold on to a simple kingdom promise that Jesus makes. And it's this. Today, you are going to be with me in paradise. It feels like you're a million light years from that, but Jesus understood we're one breath. We're one breath. We're one breath. And so what did Jesus do? Oh, Lord, into your hands I commit that last breath. And I take the plunge into eternity. You ever think about taking the plunge into eternity? What will it be? What will you see? How will you experience it? You ever seen yourself on the precipice of falling and plunging into hell? I hope so, particularly if you're not saved. But I think to myself... What's going to happen during that moment? What's going to happen during that hour? I've walked people through that moment. I held a lady's hand. Died through my prayer. Right after my prayer, gone. Slipped into eternity. I was begging her through, just whispering into her ear, receive Christ, receive Christ, trust in Christ, hold on to Christ, thrust yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ, cling to Him. He is either your righteousness and that will make all the difference in the world about you, what you're about to experience in the next couple of seconds or you're not going to believe in any of it and you're going to perish. We've got some tough texts coming. Did you look? We've got some tough verses coming. Pray for me. Because the way I am, I like to take it all the way in and man, it can do a number on you. I want to encourage you today with the words of Leon Morris as quoted by John MacArthur. I love when giants quote other giants. Shows me how humble they are. Spurgeon said, he who will not quote will never be quoted. I agree with that. Because Leon Morris says that regarding the trials and regarding the sufferings that we go through, he says these sufferings are not maybe the same to modern people. He says to us, it is an evil in and of itself, something to be avoided at all costs. While the New Testament does not gloss over this aspect of suffering, it does not lose sight either of the fact that in the good providence of God, suffering is often a means to working out God's eternal purpose. It develops in the sufferer qualities of character. This we know. It teaches valuable lessons. Suffering is not thought of as something which may possibly be avoided by the Christian. For him it is inevitable. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. We are ordained to suffer, Paul says. He, he, says, he says here, uh, he must live out his life and development of his Christian character in a world which is dominated by non-Christian ideas. His faith is not some fragile thing to be kept in a kind of spiritual cotton wool insulated from all shocks. It is robust. It is to be manifested in the fires of trouble, in the furnace of affliction. And not, and not only is it a manif manifested there, there... 
but in part, at any rate, it is to be fashioned in such places. He says, follow me, the very troubles and afflictions which the world heaps upon the believer become under God the means of making him what he ought to be, suffering when we have come to regard it in this light, is not to be thought of as evidence that God has forsaken us, Thessalonians. It's not that God has forsaken you, right? But it is evidence that God is with us. And the natural man will look at that and say, what? So suffering is a sign of blessing. What kind of God do you believe in, right? I want an Oprah Winfrey God. My God better give me everything I want. Money, health, wealth, prosperity, security, safety. If I don't get these things from my God, then I don't want to worship that God. How many people have told you that in your evangelism? If that's the kind of God that God is, forget I don't want him. I said, yeah, I know that already. That's why I'm witnessing to you. (sighs) He says here, Paul can rejoice that he fills up that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ in his own flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Suffering is a vivid token of the presence of God. Vivid reminder of the presence of God. That's what suffering is, brothers and sisters. The Apostle Paul says... In Acts chapter 13, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom. Same thought. You see this? That was very early on in Paul's life when he said that. And he says the same stuff later on in life. So what is Paul telling you? He's saying as you get old, let the kingdom reality be an increasing thing in your life, not a decreasing thing. And so question for us, brothers and sisters, is this, my last point, the reality of the kingdom. How are you doing with the reality of the kingdom? Is the kingdom a reality in your life? Does it motivate you? Does it shape your, shape your decision making? Does it shape your, your, your outlook on your trials and your suffering and your family and your society and your culture? It ought to. It ought to. If I haven't alarmed you enough yet as to the type of world that we're in, let me bring it, let me bring it full circle with this. So I was thinking, there's no mob outside my house like Jason. There's no torches and forks and pitchforks, right? And I thought, but what kind of persecution am I under if I'm under any persecution at all? And you know what I thought to myself? I am surrounded by it. Actually, I saw a video that was so detestable, I don't want to tell you what I was thinking. I'm just being real. I was so indignant. I was so angry. It was a video of a public school back east, elementary school, where they invited transvestites, uh, strippers, and people like that, dressed from head to toe in the most vile outfits you can imagine in an elementary school 
to dance and parade in front of the children. So it didn't make me mad I want to cry. It made me mad I want to spit or curse. That's how mad it made me. And the mothers are giving money to their children to go tip the stripper in the elementary school. You guys, if I didn't see it with my own eyes and verify it through many sources, I cannot believe I have to stand here and talk to you about this. Do you understand the kind of oppression that you are under in this culture? Maybe it's because you're not in the fight. Maybe it's because the church has gotten it wrong on some of these points of cultural interaction. I'm not a theonomist. Don't go there. But at the same time, there is a sin uh, that Abadiah points out where when the culture got so bad, God prosecuted his people. You know what he told them? When these foreign people came into your nation, you stood aloof. You were nowhere to be found. God got mad at that. Basically, say you weren't involved. You, you refused to get involved because you thought, well, it doesn't have to. I'm just a good little religious Jew, and I'm just going to stay over here in my little tabernacle and just not pay attention to what the pagans are doing. We're not paying attention to what the pagans are doing, and now they're pole dancing in an elementary school, and parents are celebrating it with their kids. That's what's going on. You want to talk about we live in a decadent world? It is beyond your wildest dreams what's going on. I just heard a sociologist say they're changing from LGBTQ to LGBTQP for pedophile. At one of the most powerful gatherings of futurist technocratic people, elites in the world, you had a young woman up there giving a sob story about a young man who is a pedophile and she ended the talk this sophisticated, culturally sensitive, social justice talk ended the talk with a resounding applause when she told the audience, we must support the pedophiles. And I'm like, am I still in my skin? What world am I living in? You may not have a horde of torches and pitchforks outside your, your house. You may not have ISIS on the doorstep of your house. We may have something infinitely worse. And so, what are we going to do? Hopefully, we're going to pray. We're going to live under the kingdom of God. We're going to fear more. We're going to preach the gospel more. We're going to be a little bit more sober. And be okay that you're sober. And be okay that you're kind of like a prophet in a wasteland where you walk around kind of hurt in agony. See, the world, brothers and sisters, the world is inoculated to this. They're inoculated. I was appalled when I saw the ESPN convention because I love sports, you guys. I love sports. There are many things about the culture I like just as much as maybe you do. And I was appalled that you had these strong athletic men standing on stage and clapping and adoring and giving a standing ovation because Bruce Jenner has become a woman 
and they are the model of courage now. The world is upside down and inside out, and we, according to the Bible, we are the only ones truly with the eyes and the perspective and the discernment to see it. My suspicion, we're getting ready to hit it in the hyperdrive. And with the inclusion and the advancement of technology, watch out. You know, I criticize dispensationalism a lot. Can you testify to that? For certain hermeneutical reasons. I think in the end, when the dust settles, it's all clear. On many points, some points, not all points, not all points. On some points, the dispensationalists will turn out to be more correct than we thought on some things. You know that in Europe, estimate 50,000 people are now walking around with computer chips implanted into their hand. 50,000 people are taking chips in their hand. What, what for? Oh, it's to unlock your door when you get home or to turn on the lights. Just for say, or it's doctor, he just scans the chip on your hand and your medical record comes up. Totally convenient. It's great. You should try it. Not to get all like Hal Lindsey on you or <laughs> left behind. But how... How extreme does this have to get before the church stands up and says, I don't care what eschatology I hold to. In a sense, I'm going to disagree with that. Man, you guys are the most, you get the award. You guys can come get reefs off the walls and take a decoration with you. You get the award for the most patient church on this Lord's Day. Thank you guys for bearing with me. Do you understand my burden today? I don't even think I looked at my notes, man. You know why? I have been so burdened for this. It's just been laying on me like a weight, like a log on my back because I'm in this sick culture that we're in. I'm, I'm in this. I'm, I'm surrounded by it. I feel like Lot. I feel like Noah, you know, just surrounded by evil and sickness and vile. I love that. I love that hymn that talks about the fact that when we go to heaven, you know, we, there will be no poisonous air. It just feels like the very air we breathe is toxic. When you feel like that, just remember the hour and the power of darkness is limited and the kingdom of God is as glorious as God says it is and erf- therefore it is beyond your wildest dreams glorious. Let that encourage you, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your grace. Oh God, I pray for the health, the physical health of our people here. But in the spirit of Jude, as their health prospers, may their soul prosper. And so Lord, build us up, strengthen us, give us the right perspective. Help us not just to be like cattle, Help us not to be blind as hard and difficult as these things are to talk about, preach about, and to hear. Help us not to grow numb and sensitive and ultimately, the worst of all, to become indifferent about it. Help us to hate what you hate in Christ's name. Amen.